Hey there, I'm Andy Molinsky. Welcome to the Get Out of Your Comfort Zone podcast, where we engage thought leaders about the challenges they have had in stepping outside their comfort zones in their lives and their work, and also advice that they have for young people interested in developing their leadership potential. This podcast is sponsored by Brandeis University's International Business School and the Perlmutter Institute for Global Business Leadership. I have here today Dory Clark, uh, who is a marketing strategy consultant, a professional speaker, a contributor to Harvard Business Review, uh, Time, Entrepreneur, various other places. She's been recognized as a branding expert by the Associated Press, Fortune, Inc. Magazine. Dory, thank you so much for speaking with me today about getting outside your comfort zone. Thank you, Andy. Great to talk with you. So I wanted to talk. I wanted to start by having you, you know, think think about a situation or a time in your professional life where you've had to step outside your comfort zone. Something that's challenging, that was challenging, was a stretch for you, was a reach for you, but somehow you were able to uh, find the courage, find the skills, find the ability to to overcome those challenges. I'd love you to tell our listeners that story, and then we can go from there. Yeah, thank you. Well, one thing, uh, of course, we were we were just chatting about before we we hit the record button is that in the past year, something new that I have uh, tried for myself is stand up comedy, and uh, of co- of course, uh, you know that that's a little bit of a terrifying prospect for uh, for many people. For me, it was it, it was definitely a, a a stretch because I spend a lot of my time on stages. I do professional speaking, but what I very quickly realized is that giving a business lecture on a stage is really different than doing stand-up comedy. Um, the skills, I mean, certainly there's some transferable skills in terms of, you know, being able to project and whatever, but you're not relying on slides. You don't have a podium. You're just up there with a microphone and you're dealing with a crowd that, you know, I mean, let's be honest, if you're giving a business talk, it's sometimes a little bit of a low bar, right? They don't want to be bored. They want to learn something. Uh, but generally, they're going to be polite. But in a stand-up comedy audience, they have been drinking. And they they don't just want to, you know, be pleasantly surprised. They want to be entertained to the point that they are laughing out loud. And if they don't, there is the possibility that they will heckle you. And so the stakes are just magnified to this extreme extent. So let, and, let me let me yeah. ask you, how did you how did you get interested in this? That's so it's a it's a very interesting uh hobby i'm assuming not uh, not a second career is this a hobby <laughs> we'll, we'll see how i do <laughs> <laughs> how did you get into it so there uh there's a there's a, a friend that i have uh in new york a woman named terry trespicio who also does business speaking and she had started to do stand-up comedy and she invited me to one of her shows and i thought that i thought it sounded you know really fun i thought it sounded like a uh just a, a cool activity and one that i admired because i had done improv in college but but for you know 20 years i hadn't done anything related to the world of comedy and one of my goals the way that i sort of think about productivity and life and whatever is that i like to set a, a small number a fixed number of both uh, personal and professional goals for myself. And so I think of it in six month increments. So every six months I set two professional goals and then one personal goal for myself. And I realized as I was thinking about what should my personal goal be, I thought, you know, this would be a really great way to expand myself, to learn something fun, because 
I like when my book Standout launched in 2015. I worked so hard that year. I was constantly on the road speaking. I was doing a million podcasts, and toward the end of the year. I started to realize something kind of ominous, which is that people would ask sometimes that I met in a social situation, they'd be like, so what do you do for fun? And I literally did not have an answer because <laughs> all I did was work. And I, I realized like, oh, you know, if, if someone's meeting me, if they're a business author or they like to read business books, they're probably going to think I'm super interesting. And if they don't, they're going to think I'm the most boring person in the world because that is all I can talk about. And I thought, no, I, I've got to, I've, I've got to, expand and diversify. And so I set this personal goal. I thought, you know what? Stand up sounds like a great thing to do. I'm going to push myself to do that. So I, um, uh, I heard about it from Terry in the winter, but I was, I was too busy then, but I literally put it on my calendar. I said, you know what? I'm going to have time in July. I'll do it this summer. And so I signed up for a course and I, I took two courses, actually one in the summer and one in the fall, and it performed probably about a dozen times. In fact, as we're speaking tomorrow night, I have another comedy show in New York and I have, uh, I have nine friends coming. So, uh, so I'm, I'm trying to put myself out there. So, so in terms of comfort zones, uh, what's been, what was the biggest aspect of it that was a challenge for you in terms of stepping outside your comfort zone? I think that what probably the the biggest difference is, is that in the world of business speeches, you are rewarded for storytelling. That's, you know, that's considered a good thing. If, if you, you know, if you make a point and then you tell a good anecdote to back it up and in stand up, the value system is different. And it sort of took me a while to figure that out, that they're literally looking for something different. They, they want you to condense it so much that it's not about telling a story. That's actually bad. What you need to do is boil the essence down to like two really funny sentences. And so just, I could feel the gears of my brain working. And it was an interesting process for me to realize mm -hmm. that behavior that's rewarded in one context is actually not really correct in another one. You can't, you can't just map one onto the other. You have to understand what is called for in that context and adapt to that. That's really interesting. I, when you were talking about improv before, I know people who have purposely taken improv classes, which has been outside their comfort zone because they have, they felt awkward in social situations. And so they almost used improv as a tool to learn, you know, social skills and how to carry on conversations because so much of social life is improvisational sort of like the yes and like there's certain aspects of improv where you're meant to um, carry on a conversation even if it's a direction that you're not comfortable with and there's a direct transfer was there any uh, this is very different is there and, and we'll get on to other comfort zone issues in a second this is just very interesting were there any other I don't know areas that, that you've maybe even been surprised about how doing stand up has has impacted you in other parts of your life. Yeah, I think that one one area that I didn't I mean I think I appreciated intellectually but I didn't fully grasp until I started doing stand up was the importance of getting the audience on your side right away. Mm -hmm. Now, we all know that let's say if you write a book, you know, you want to start out strong, you want to grab them, you know, we all like it if we read a novel, and like something amazing happens in the first page, you know, someone gets killed, or you know, like, oh, who done it, you know, <laughs> um, that that draws you in. And yet, so often, if you know, if if I'm writing 
a book or if I'm writing a speech or, you know, giving a speech or something like that, we just, we start the way we see other people start like, Oh, hi, great to be here. You know, so nice. Thanks to Joe and Bob and Fran and Mary. And, you know, and it's, it's just like the most insipid thing in the world. And we don't understand we're losing people when we do that. You, you need, you need to get them on your side. And when in standup, you have this, this, uh, automatic like immediate response like you can tell if the audience is with you or if they're not with you uh because they're either laughing or they're not laughing you can see when they you know their eyes start to dart around and they're looking at their phones or whatever you have to keep their attention and it's uh it's very fast paced and so for me in stand-up certainly but also in transferable circumstances i realized we can't simply be modeling the behavior of others around us sometimes for things like you know, speeches or books or whatever, because most of what's out there, frankly, is mediocre. We need to never forget that the audience forms a first impression in the first 15 seconds, the first 30 seconds. And we need to take advantage of that because mm. what happens is if they form a good impression initially, they will root for you enough that they will be less hard on you later if something doesn't work. If the first thing doesn't work, the rest of your set could be amazing, but they'll just be the crossing their arms like, yeah, whatever, whatever. If the first thing is funny, and then a little bit later on, something doesn't quite work, they'll give you the benefit of the doubt because they're in your world. And that's I think that's something that's really important. Yeah, no, don't, like, yeah, it's very interesting. Those first impressions really count. I was thinking, as you were talking, various things went through my mind. Don't bury the headline or, you know, first impressions count. I know when uh, in academics, that's even true. You, uh, If you're writing a paper, you really want to capture the audience initially because, you know, they'll be critical later. But if they're more, it's almost like you're buying some insurance for yourself by getting them on your side. That's, that's very interesting. Um, was there... Now, you mentioned you did this in the context of a class, and back to comfort zones. I know a lot of people talk about the idea that when you're stepping outside your comfort zone, whether it's public speaking or networking or small talk or being assertive, that you don't necessarily want to jump into the most terrifying version of the situation that you're talking about. So in other words, you know, I assume that you didn't go from zero to comedy club. <laughs> like there was some progression between there. Is that right? Is that what the class was? That's that's what the class was. The class was really intended to be a kind of safe space, uh, so to speak. So you had, uh, a, you know, an instructor who was a professional comedian, but you know, a, a gentle one, nice one. And you would get up and do at first two minutes, you know, pretty pretty manageable, you know, two, only two minutes. It's gonna it's gonna be over before you know it uh, in front of the class, and you know the students know they're going to be doing their two minutes. So, I mean, no one is going to be a real jerk to you. Like forgiving, they're going to forgiving audience. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The, you know, the teacher is going to give you f feedback, but it's going to be, you know, gentle feedback, not you sucked kind of feedback. And you do that for six weeks and then you get yourself ready for a graduation show. So there, there definitely is a ramp up period where you can experiment and fail and be okay with that. That's really interesting. Um, so, so, Stepping away from um, stand-up, which is a really fascinating uh, topic, and I love the ways that it really can connect to other aspects of your life. What are some other examples for you, just you know, personally or professionally, um, where you've had to step outside your comfort zone? I'd, I'd be curious. I think the audience would be interested in hearing about that. Is there something that sort of rings a bell for you? 
Yeah, well, I have I have a um, a comment, and then I have a question for you, Andy. Actually, sure. um, so so the the you know the the comment, the response. I mean, something that that's the first thing that really comes to my mind is I think back to when I was first starting out in the professional world, and I I, I was younger younger than average, I guess you could say, because I had gone to college early. I actually started college when I was 14, and then I graduated when I was 18. And I went right into a master's program, uh, which I finished when I was 20. So I was entering the workforce, you know, at 20, which is a little a little younger than um, the normal. Um, but I would be going to these professional events and everyone was older than me. It wasn't it wasn't like I was 20 and oh this one is 23. It was like I was 20 and everyone was like 50. And it just it, it just felt so incredibly awkward and I didn't I didn't know what to say to these folks. I was it was like, "Oh, well, we're probably not going to be BFFs, you know, because I'm 20 years old and after this they're going to go home to their three kids in the suburbs." Um, so it was it was a very awkward thing for me. I, I worked, I did a lot of work in politics when I was younger, you know, I was a campaign manager. I was a consultant on a number of races. I ultimately became a press secretary, uh, on a gubernatorial and then a presidential campaign. Uh, but a lot of times I would go to these like fundraisers and I mean, the donors were all way older than me. And so learning how to make conversation and to try to build relationships with people who on the surface, you just, don't have anything in common with that was uh, that was intimidating for me, uh, but I, I did force force myself to do it, uh, and I think I got reasonably good at it. And, and for me, the pathway really was I was you know you you were in the Boston area. I'm uh, you know and I'm in New York now, but for a long time I was living in Boston. So this was Massachusetts politics, which uh, despite our you know sort of paltry presidential track record as of late, Massachusetts does breed <laughs> a lot of national politicians. I mean, we think Mike Dukakis and John Kerry and Mitt Romney and all these people who maybe they weren't elected, but they, you know, they were good enough. They rose to the top. Massachusetts is a good place to learn politics. They do it well there. And what I realized from watching very intently, I worked on dozens of campaigns, the best politicians, is that they treated the situation like they were always the host. Now, they weren't, I mean, you know, in some ways they are. I mean, I guess they were the headliner or whatever, but they didn't know these people. They didn't know the, you know, all the random people that were coming to the thing, but they always, even if they didn't, they acted like the host. They made it their job to welcome other people. You know, they, they you know, they'd always, you know, oh, good to meet you. You know, they do the, the, the half hug, half handshake, you know, and, and the good ones, they were really genuine about it. You know, they but the attitude they had, because I think it's probably a little scary even for them to con converse with all these random people, is they focused on welcoming the other people. And I think in doing that, it takes the pressure off of you to perform. No, there's no there's no question. I mean, it's 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 adopting a role. Right. It, it automatically gives you a script because when you're stuck in these situations where, you know, you're ha forced to make small talk with all these people, even as a you know famous person, it can be pretty intimidating. But if you're playing the welcoming host role, that gives you a script. Right. That's it, exactly right. Yeah. That's yeah, interesting. So, yeah. So the, the question that I have for you, Andy, that I'd just be curious about your feedback on is how do you how do you tell the difference between a situation that is outside your comfort zone that's in, that you just you you need to surmount 
and, and it's important for you to do as compared to a situation that's outside your comfort zone and it's just you freaking hate it and like you know don't, you don't really want to do it it would just be forcing yourself to do right. it and maybe you're better off like avoiding it right no it's a really good question um you know, and because we also will create, if I understand the question correctly, that we'll cre often create rationalizations, you know, where it might be something that we would want. It's, it's, it can be confusing. Like we can tell ourselves that, oh, this is outside my comfort zone. I don't want to do it. It's not worth it, for instance, but actually it might really be worth it. But you use that as a rationalization not to do it. Um, you know, so one question that I, so I, 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 uh, I teach a class at Brandeis where I think I might have told you about this, where I have usually 25 or 30 uh, MBA students, so young adult, uh, adults, you know, young professionals who have to step outside their comfort zones. And, and, and I watch them. It's almost like a living laboratory. And I get some awesome uh, insight into the challenges of acting outside your comfort zone. And one question that I always ask people or encourage them to ask their themselves is, if I didn't experience any anxiety, just as a thought exercise, if I didn't experience any anxiety in, in this situation, if I could snap my fingers and have it go away as a thought exercise, would this be something I'd be excited to do or be able to do, right? If you could just have that anxiety disappear, is this something that's really cool that I'd really love to be able to do in my heart of hearts? And you know, it's a little hard. It's a thought exercise. Of course, we're talking about some alternative reality that doesn't exist, but oftentimes that exercise enables people to be able to say, yeah, I would love to be able to speak in yeah. public. Yes, of course, I make all these excuses and I say I can't do it because I don't have the time or I have to be with my kids or whatever. But you know what? If I could take the anxiety away, I'd love to be able to do that. Or they might say, you know what? No matter what, if I was, if my pulse rate was 50 or something, I mean, if it was like the most like non-anxiety provoking situation in the world, I just have no interest. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And I don't know. That that's a question that I often that I often find, but I do find that um it's sometimes hard to answer that question because sort of anxiety and rationalizations and fear sometimes clouds the picture. I don't know. Yeah. What, is, what do you think? I, I think that's I think that's a really good uh, litmus test. Because one thing, you know, when I think about stepping outside your your comfort zone, one thing that I talk about and and in fact I even advise advise others. So it's good to, it's good to, you know, just always ask, you know, reality check, like, Oh, am I just enabling people? Yeah. But for instance, um, you know, I'm, I'm an introvert and there are certain types of networking events that I super hate. So for instance, if, if it's going to be like a, a really big, loud cocktail party where I don't know a lot of people, like you walk into a room and it's like hundreds of people and it's like, uh, who do I talk to? Like, this is very uncomfortable for me. And so I've, I've just decided like, you know, a couple of years ago, I just decided, you know what? I hate this. I'm not going to do it. I'm not ever going to do it. I will network with people in lots of other ways, but I don't like this. And so I swore off of it, but it's, it's, you know, you want to interrogate yourself sometimes like, Oh, am I just justifying it? Or, am, you know, or is it, is it actually like, you know, a good legitimate choice? Now, I think with your frame, I would lean towards saying it's a legitimate choice because the thing that it reminds me of, which I also hate, is like partying at nightclubs yeah. because, it's, because it's loud and, you know, lots of people drinking and stuff. And I don't like that either. But I don't know. What do you think? Well, no, I think that's right. And, and as I talk about in my book, um, I think if you can start to see yourself as sort of powerful instead of powerless in these situations, you end up realizing you have a lot of 
capacity to sculpt your life and to sculpt situations to your liking. So for instance, if the if the goal in this situation in your case is to depends what it is, you know, whether it's it's to, you know, to I don't know, meet people and create business contacts or whatever the goal might be, right? There are multiple ways to achieve that goal. Maybe the conventional way or the standard way or the default way for some people are these massive networking events, which by the way, I also feel it's like deeply uncomfortable in. You know, there are multiple solutions to that. You've written about this yourself. I've learned a lot from your writing in, in this topic, but for instance, you can you can not go to them. You can decide that you're going to find other different types of networking events. You can decide that you're a morning person and you want to go to smaller, more intimate networking events. In the academic world, I've found that to be the case as well. There are massive conferences. We have one yearly that has 10,000 people. And I, I often, not in the same room, <laughs> but <laughs> I, I often opt for the smaller, more intimate conferences like at a farmhouse, like 40 people at a farmhouse, which is so much better. I, I like that so much more. But you can also sometimes, you know, sort of customize or tweak an event itself. So if it is a massive networking event, you can bring a friend or you can give yourself a goal. You know, I'm talking to two people, try to make maybe two connections at most. And you know what, if they're good connections, I'll then maybe meet that person for coffee or something like that in a more comfortable situation. Or you might decide that, you know, I, I do this myself, that I'm going to get there really early because yeah, there's going to be a thousand people, but there won't be a thousand people at the beginning. Right. Right. And so yep. you then you then can sort of almost sculpt a situation. You can downsize a situation by playing with time a little bit. So I know there are a lot of things you can do, but I don't think it's a cop out at all. In fact, I think that it's I think that I think it's a mistake to sort of see life through the dichotomous lens of, you know, failure, success or go to the event or don't go to the event. I think there's a lot of middle ground in terms of ways to sort of achieve your purposes in slightly different ways. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's great. So, um, so any other advice to our listeners about stepping outside your comfort zone? Um, anything that uh, you'd like to pass on in terms of your own life, whether it's stand up, whether it's uh, you know uh, entering the work world as such a young precocious uh, person? <laughs> uh, any other advice that uh, you have? Well, you know, one of the one of the things that I think is most useful actually comes from actually comes from your uh, work, Andy. But I, I really liked how one of the things that you talk about is having a kind of like cultural mentor because mm. I, I think that, that that that's really helpful because we if we don't know how to be, we're kind of like taking just a shot in the dark and and oftentimes because you have a caricature in your head, you will over-index in the opposite direction. So like, oh, I'm scared to promote myself, but I know I have to promote myself. And then like you promote yourself so much you look like a jerk because you like just, oh, I'll, okay, that's what I have to do. And and you, you don't get the proportions right. But if you have if you have a role model that you can sort of latch onto, you know, someone, I mean, it doesn't even have to be a real person in your life. It could be, you know, some kind of um external role model, like a historical figure or a celebrity or something like that. But as long as you're sort of immersing and watching carefully, I mean, it's even better, of course, if it's someone in your life. But if you can find a way to calibrate yourself based on the model of someone that you think is doing a good job, it gives you a lot more data to operate off of. So you don't feel like you're guessing so blindly. And also, I'd, I'd add from what you said earlier, I think that the structure of a class uh, it doesn't have to be a traditional class, but a class where you've got a, 
relatively safe space, but someone who's kind of pushing you and inching you slightly outside your comfort zone, as you talked about your teacher did, in a context with an audience, so that there is a bit of stress, but not a ridiculously large or intense or critical audience, you know what I mean? And so to build it through stages, I would argue that there's probably a lot of, it's not a mentor, but a lot of mentoring in that context that you talked about, I'm guessing. Yeah, absolutely. So, all right. This has been great. I love talking with you and, uh, and I, I really uh, appreciate it. And I'm sure that our listeners will as well. Thank you so much. Thanks, Andy. Thank you for listening to the Get Out of Your Comfort Zone podcast. If you're interested in learning more about comfort zones and the work I do, please visit andymolinsky.com. And you can also find all social media links there or by Googling my name, Andy Malinsky. Also, feel free to email me directly with ideas for future podcasts, questions, comments. My email is andy at andymolinsky.com. Thank you so much for listening.